or dad ever say that to you? <laughs> if you have kids, have you ever said that to your kids? I never have because I'm a great father. And so, I mean, some of you I know. No, actually, uh, just this last weekend, Thanksgiving weekend, okay, kids are off school Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Then they got Saturday and Sunday, which is great because we love having our kids around. We love the summertime, but see, in the summertime when the kids are around, they can go outside and play, right? In the wintertime, when they're home for a long extended period, especially when they're used to being at school, and they can't go out and play as much because it's cold, then they wind up playing a lot in the house. The house is a lot smaller. In our basement, we have this basketball hoop that's like uh, a little Fisher-Price kind of a joint. You know, it's probably made for like six, seven-year-olds. Uh, I've got a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 10-year-old son. And they love to play basketball down there. The problem is, it doesn't just stay basketball. It turns into like battle ball or wrestle ball. I don't even know what. And it's fighting and elbows and blood and screaming. And so they had been playing battle ball downstairs. And, well, we have traditions on Thanksgiving break that we like to do. Of course, we do the whole meal with family and friends. And, but then on Friday, we go cut down a Christmas tree, Okay. Uh, we go out to the field. I always tell my wife every year, uh, we're going to get a small one this year. And then I get out there, and I'm like, oh, must have the biggest. And then we get home, and it doesn't fit. And then you're cutting, like, feet off of the thing. And finally get it in there. And, and, and usually Brenda will uh, do the lights with the kids. And then usually, like, sometimes that night, sometimes a couple days later, we put the ornaments on. Well, this was either Saturday or Sunday of last week. I don't remember exactly when. But we've all been in the house for a while at this point, and it's ornament night, and uh, Brenda's putting the ornaments on, and the kids have been downstairs, and, and, and the fighting from Battle Ball had kind of made its way upstairs to putting the, the ornaments on the tree, and, and so now they're all in it, okay? Uh, they're fighting over which ornament they get to put on, and which tree branch is again, that was my tree branch, no, I said I wanted to do that one, ah! all right? And it's just getting crazy, and when my wife starts to lose it, okay, like that's when you know, She's way more patient than I am, okay? And, and, and she starts to lose it on the kids a little bit, just like, I'm sick of this, mother. And then whenever she, like, amps up, that's when I amp up. She didn't know I was going to tell this exact story, so I'll, I'll have some forgivingness to get later. But I, I jumped in. I jumped in when she's starting to, to, to raise her voice, and I'm like, enough! My daughter uh, started to uh, cry and went down to her room, and my son started to cry, and, like, I ruined Christmas decorating for the whole, like, I'm a great father, I I know. Um, Enough, though. Have you ever, you ever heard that said before or said it to somebody? Like, you're trying to get their attention, right? Knock it off. Chill out. No more complaining. No more this. No more that. God actually is going to say that to us today. He won't uh, do it with the anger and sin that I did it with. But he is going to ask us to stop it, to knock it off. He's going to tell us enough. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to Psalm chapter 46. Psalm 46. If you need a Bible, you want to follow along, you can pull out your phone, or we've got some paper Bibles that we'll uh, hand out. Just raise your hand. We'll make sure somebody will grab one for you uh, so that you can follow along with us. While you're turning there to Psalm 46, uh, I just want to remind us, we're kicking off a brand new series. It's an Advent series. 
And Advent is a time that the church has celebrated for centuries. It goes way back to ancient times, and it's basically the four weeks leading up to Christmas. We're in the second week of Advent. We started celebrating last week with the lighting of the uh, um, hope candle. Week two is the peace candle, where we kind of focus on peace. And uh, Advent is uh, literally just the, the word comes from a Latin word, Adventus. All right? If you're ever in uh, Trivial Pursuits, now you know. Adventus, and it just means arrival. Okay, when you hear the advent of something, right? The advent of the automobile means that the arrival of the automobile. And it also has kind of a connotation that things are never the same after. And that's certainly true when Christ first came. And so this season is kind of when we look forward with anticipation for Christ's coming, for him to break into our lives in a fresh new way. For Christ to not just be remembered for his first advent when he first came, but also as we look forward to his second advent when he will come again. And we do so with expectation, knowing that it's coming, right? It's intended to help us slow down, to anticipate and prepare for Christ's coming, to learn to be still in the midst of chaos, which brings us to Psalm 46. Uh, Psalm 46 is actually written with three stanzas. Uh, there's verses 1 through 3, verses 4 to 7, and verses 8 through 11. And after each stanza, there is the word. It's not actually in the NIV because commentators uh, or scholars, they don't know how to translate it exactly. They don't know what it means. Uh, Selah. Uh, Some think that it's uh, intended to be a pause because the Psalms, of course, were songs. Some think that it's, a, it's intended to be a pause to, to kind of reflect maybe where the music continues to play, but the singing has ceased. Uh, some think that maybe it's a musical notation of some sorts that we don't understand anymore. But I think that there's something really beautiful about that idea of us pausing after each one of these. Uh, it's intended to kind of make us stop and pay attention to what's in the text. So why don't you read with me verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Selah. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Now, it's interesting because the text goes on here to now kind of describe uncreation, the unraveling of creation, the dissolving of the world, kind of creation in reverse. Uh, we talked about this uh, when we went through Exodus. Uh, the idea of creation uh, coming up time and time again throughout the Old Testament, and the idea that water is often uh, used as a metaphor for chaos and disorder. And so in Genesis 1, you have God taking the chaos of the water and calming it, separating it, and bringing dry ground. In the Exodus story, Israel goes out of Egypt and then to the Red Sea, and they get to the Red Sea, and it is kind of this opportunity for chaos to come back into the story. They can't go forward. It's a sea. And Pharaoh's army is coming behind. And God separates the chaos, 
bringing forth dry ground order for them to walk through. Uh, We see it again here, the metaphor being used again. It says that the mountains are shaking and falling into the heart of the sea, that the waters are roaring and foaming. It's this idea that creation is being undone. Now, uh, we think that when the psalmist wrote it, uh, it probably came at a time where there was some nations around Israel, because this happened on multiple occasions, were growing in strength and their armies were getting big and they were afraid that maybe a nation was going to come and attack them. Uh, I've never experienced anything like that, to be honest. Grew up in the States my entire life. Uh, We've never, at least as long as I've been alive, had a war on our shores. I was never afraid that someone might come and conquer Flint or Grand Rapids. Flint feels like we kind of conquered ourselves sometimes. But I've never had to fear like that. I've never wanted, but there's certainly been things in my life that have happened where I felt like the bottom was falling out of my life. Uh, maybe you've experienced something like that too. Where it feels like there is an uncreation happening. Sometimes it's because of things that we've done that we're kind of experiencing consequences for. That are kind of out of our control. Sometimes it's just something that's completely out of our control that there's nothing we can do anything about it. And it just kind of feels like... like Everything that we thought was solid, the mountains have now literally just, they're they're just falling into the sea. Like, the world as we know it, our lives as we know it are kind of dissolving right before our eyes. What do we do in those moments, in those places? I've got a a, a good friend whose um, grandson has been struggling with cancer. Uh, He was first diagnosed uh, about five years ago. Uh, They went in, um, went through the treatments, the the tumor uh, had stopped growing, they thought they had kind of won, and then last year uh, they found that it was uh, growing again. Um, His mom wrote this email uh, just this past Friday. She said, I find myself full of different emotions this morning. My baby boy is having his port removed today at 1 p.m., I'm so happy for him to get this out, and it lessens his chances of infection significantly. He can bathe and swim anywhere without worry, and no more pokes in his chest. I can vividly remember four summers ago bouncing off the walls with excitement that he was having his port removed. That meant his tumor had stopped growing, that we were at the end of chemo, and no more pokes. This port removal is full of different emotions. It means we have no more IV chemo options. It means our backs are up against the wall with this awful disease and that we must pray for ultimate healing for our baby. Please wrap him tight in your thoughts and prayers. I guarantee you that her life feels like it's unraveling. That there is uncreation taking place. And maybe you walked in with something like that as well. Maybe something that you thought was solid feels like it's crumbling. Maybe something in your own life or health. Maybe a friend or someone that you love. And you're wondering, where is God in this place? Can I trust him to be true to what he says, even when the mountains feel like they're falling into the sea? 
Is he actually our refuge and strength and ever-present help? Uh, this is week two of Advent. On week two, we light the peace candle. It's hard to have a sense of peace when it feels like our lives are getting turned upside down. Um, there is a, uh, a place uh, in the Psalms that I want to get to in just a minute that I think will actually open up this concept a little bit more for us. But in the meantime, let's continue reading the next stanza, starting in verse 4. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. Uh, now we have the image of water, which is actually life-giving rather than chaotic. It's a stream that makes the city glad. And it's speaking specifically about the town of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Verse 5, God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. What does he say when he lifts his voice? Let's keep reading. The Lord Almighty is with us, which this phrase is going to get repeated again. And I love the fact that Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Pause. Reflect. Let's continue reading in verse 8, the last stanza. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. In other words, in the midst of whatever war you're facing, whether it's something happening in your life, whether it's an actual war that are taking place all over the world, God comes and his voice can stop wars, end them. What does his voice say? God finally enters into the narrative here. In Psalm 46, verse 10, God says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And here it gets repeated again. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still. So God finally speaks. Now it's interesting because uh, in the Hebrew which is what the Old Testament is predominantly written in, there's a number of different ways that you can say be still, a number, number of different words that can be used. There's a specific word that's used here, though, and G.H. Uh, Wilson, he's an Old Testament uh, uh, Psalms scholar. I want to read you something uh, that I learned from him. Okay, um, says in, uh, uh, in, in his commentary on the Psalms, he says, there's many ways to say be still in the Old Testament. A variety of Hebrew words are translated in this way. But the term used in 46.10, Rapha, has the sense of cease and desist. God comes on the picture and says, enough. Like a parent separating two struggling children or a teacher breaking up a fight in the schoolyard, it does not mean to be quiet or calm as much as it means to stop what you have been doing and be still. Enough! 
God breaks in in the midst of all the different things that are battling in our lives, the wars that are happening throughout the world, the terrible things that feel like they're uncreating our lives, and God says, enough! Be still and know that I am God. Enough. Chill out. Cease. Knock it off. Pay attention. And know that I am enough. Enough. I am enough. I want us to flip into uh, a couple stories in the Gospels this morning. We're going to flip over to John chapter 4. When it says be still or cease, stop, and know that I am God, what does it look like to know what God is like? Uh, When Jesus came, Jesus actually said, uh, you want to see the Father? You've already seen him if you've seen me. I do what the Father does. I and the Father are one. So if we want to know what it looks like to actually stop, to be told enough, and then know what God is like, well, we got to see what Jesus does. So I want to look at two stories that I think actually connect to each other in the Gospel of John. The first one is in John chapter 4. Now, uh, Jesus has been doing some ministry in the southern part of Israel, which is where Jerusalem is. The Pharisees do not like him. The religious leaders do not like him. And so uh, he's under constant surveillance uh, as well as uh, just being persecuted. And so Jesus has to go back to Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, which is where he's from, which is where he does most of his ministry. Now, to get, though, from the southern part to the northern part, uh, the fastest way is through Samaria, but most Jews would take the long way because they don't want to even go through Samaria. They don't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans don't like each other. But Jesus says, on this particular occasion, I must go through Samaria. Interesting. All right, so we pick up the story, chapter 4, verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So the fact that it's noon is important. It's one of the hottest points in the day. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? This was a shocking statement. A number of reasons. The first is, Jesus is a man. The Samaritan woman is a woman. He's there by himself. She's there by herself. The fact that he would speak to her like this, without anybody else around, could seem scandalous. But more so than that, he's a Jewish man and she's a Samaritan woman. Like, this should never occur. Look what she says. Uh, Verse 8 just tells us parenthetically, his disciples had gone into the town to get food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then we get another parenthetical note. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This is almost one of those moments where it feels like God breaking in to this woman's life and saying, enough. Will you give me a drink? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That just means like a spring, okay? Okay. Living water is water that flows or bubbles up from the ground. It's not 
a pond or a sea where it's stagnant. That's what living water means. Okay? Jesus is using it uh, with two meanings. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? In other words, yo, you know about something that I don't know about? Because I live around here, man. I know all the different places you can get water. You seem to know something maybe I don't, and she doesn't really buy it. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, enough, I am enough. I am not just enough, I'm more than enough. You see, uh, this lady would have been the epitome of mountains falling into the heart of the sea. Her life felt like a constant movement of uncreation. If we continued reading the story, we would find out uh, that this woman has been married multiple times. In fact, five times she's been married. And now the guy that she's living with is not her husband. There's no mention of any children. So how is she going to get by as she gets older? She has no safety net. She's there at noon, which means... She has come at a time when she doesn't expect anyone else to be there. You would not go get water in the heat of the day. You would do it in the morning when it's cooler. But that's probably when all the other women from the village came to get water. And she'd rather not see their glances and hear their whispers. And so she comes at noon. Her entire life is a life of unraveling, of uncreation. She doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. And she certainly is not experiencing peace. And Jesus comes to her in that moment and says, enough of all the things that you don't think, of all the ways that you think you're missing, that your life seems to be falling apart. He says, I am enough. You're here for water. I want to give you something where you'll never thirst again. Jump over just two chapters to chapter 6. Jesus has now walked up to the north, and we find out in chapter 6 that uh, he's been doing some miracles and some teaching, and people want more of that, and so this massive crowd of people comes looking for Jesus. Verse 5, chapter 6, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? I love Jesus. He's just totally setting Philip up here, all right? In fact, the text even tells us Jesus already knows what he's going to do. He's like trying to get Philip to think a little bit, all right? Verse 6, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one just to have a bite. Jesus, we don't have enough. Why are you even asking about how we're going to feed him? You know we can't. We don't have enough. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves. Notice how he doesn't just say five barley loaves. Five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Andrew's like, yo, we got this, but it's small. It ain't enough. Jesus said, have the people sit down. 
there was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. So we know at least 5,000 people, probably more. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Jesus says, I am enough. I am more than enough. Now, if we jump down a little bit, uh, we find that Jesus actually kind of sneaks away from that miracle. Because the people were so excited that Jesus had just fed them miraculously this food that they decide they're going to make him their king. In fact, it says they were going to forcibly make him their king. So he sneaks away, sneaks off, goes around to the other side of the lake. And this is probably a day or so later. Jump down to verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, this is the crowds again, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you're looking for me because of what you think you can get from me. You're not looking for me for what I want to give to you, but what you think you can get from me. And and I think way too often, we do that with our Christianity. Jesus and church and like we go to church and we're involved and following because of what we think we can get from Jesus. Like, yo, man, that's the dude that gives me, he's the one that gives me barley loaves and fish. He'll give me physical food for my stomach. And Jesus is like, you're following me for the wrong reason. I got something so much better. Same thing with the woman at the well. She's like, yo, you know about some other place I can go get water where I can go there in the morning and a whole bunch of other women ain't going to be there whispering about me? Tell me about it. And she's like, I want to give you something that's even better. I want to give you water that will cause you to never thirst again. Here, he's like, I got bread for you, but I actually want to give you something better than barley and fish. I want to give you bread that will never run out. Keep reading. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Believe in the one. That's the work. That's how you gain the bread of life. That's how you gain the water that never runs dry. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. The he there, they seem to be referencing Moses. Look what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, verse 32, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses Who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You hear the echoes from the woman at the well? Jesus is like, look, enough. 
I'm enough. That even when your world seems to be falling apart, even when everything seems to be crashing down, in seasons of busyness and craziness, because this is kind of a season of busyness and craziness, right? I had a party Friday night. I had a party last night. I got another one tonight. I got kids that need their Christmas gifts bought, right? I got stuff to wrap. We got places to go. We got family members we need to see. There's so much going on, right? That's why the season of Advent is so powerful and important because it causes us to say, enough. Be still. Cease and desist so that you can actually know that I am God, that I am enough. Even when everything seems to be falling apart, if you'll stop just long enough to know who I am, that I am not just the God of barley loaves and fish, I am the God of bread that never runs out. I'm not just the God of a drink of water from Jacob's well. I'm the God who actually wants to give you living water that will never run dry. When we only want to use Jesus for what he can give to us, we miss out on all that Jesus actually wants to give to us. Psalm chapter 23, uh, verse 1, is what I'd like to close with. It's a pretty well-known psalm, Psalm 23. Uh, Verse 1 is probably the most well-known verse in it. The Lord is my shepherd, I have no needs. Or as the NIV says, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I lack nothing. What I want us to do is just take the next minute and we're going to be still. We're going to cease and desist just for this time. And we're going to be reminded that God is enough. God, in his kindness and grace during the season of Advent, comes to us no matter what is going on in your life, and he says, enough. I am enough. Let's give him some time to speak to us in silence.
Father God, thank you for space, sacred space. In the midst of busy weeks, in the midst of times when maybe it feels like life is, is kind of unraveling, even in the times when things are going really well, God, it's possible for us to just keep humming along and miss who you really are. Thank you for space to be still and know that you are God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are enough. God, let us recognize peace comes from you. We love you, Jesus. Thanks for loving us. Father God, would you please accept our worship? You deserve it.